Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we're going through the best bits of The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. Oh yeah, I was waiting for the subtitle, but there is none. Yeah, I was about to read one, but there's nothing <laughs> Simon there. Sinek is the author of Start With Why, and this book, The Infinite Game, takes the ideas and the philosophy from another older book, Finite and Infinite Games, and applies it to the world of business. The benefits of infinite thinking or looking at the long term in all your plans, it's kind of obvious if you look around at different areas of culture, if you look at the rise of great societies, if you look at the advancements in science and medicine, or if you take your trip to Barcelona and you look at Gaudi's work with the Sagrada Familia, uh, which you know he, when he designs that and builds that, it wasn't for himself, it was actually going to be the generations after him, um, so the, the infinite perspective. All of these things happen because large groups of people got together, united by a common cause, and they chose to collaborate, even though there was no clear end in sight. One example is like the exploration of space. Rockets would crash, they'd try again. They'd try a different way. If it crashed again, they'd try something else. And even after they'd succeeded in that first goal, they found a new goal that pushed them even further. It wasn't that people were doing it for an end-of-year bonus. They weren't doing it uh, to get the, the tick of approval or the pat on the back or to improve their quarterly earnings. They were doing it because they were contributing to something bigger than themselves, something with a value that would last beyond their lifetime. So we'll define infinite thinking soon, but for all its benefits, the long-term infinite kind of view, it's not very easy. It takes a lot of effort because human beings were really inclined to seek out all these immediate short-term solutions to all the uncomfortable problems that are around us. And if you look around, the default mindset of this finite thinking is very familiar. When you do massive layoffs to meet arbitrary projections or you have these cutthroat, high-pressure work environments, and a lot of companies are just subservient to the shareholder over the need to employees or customers or just a longer-term vision. So it takes a great leader to break out of that finite mindset, to break out of this short-term thinking and push towards some long-term vision, some infinite mindset. It's the great leaders are the ones who think beyond the short term and they look at that long, long, long time horizon way off in the distance. They know that it's not about the next quarter. It's not about the next election. It's not about the next shareholder report. It's about the next generation and the generations beyond that. So as in James Cast's book, Finite and Infinite Games, finite games are defined as games that have at least two players. They have fixed rules. There's an agreed upon objective and when you reach that objective, the game's finished. Uh, footy, for example, or football, that's a finite game. The players all wear uniforms and they're very easily identifiable. After 90 minutes is up, uh, whoever scored the most goals wins and that's it. So in finite games, there's always a beginning, a middle and an end. Yeah, there's a clear set of rules. There's even a referee to enforce them. There's very clear boundaries. Everybody knows exactly what's happening and exactly what needs to be done in this very short time span. Contrast that to an infinite game. Often the players are unknown. The rules are pretty much unknown. There's definitely no rule book. There's definitely no referee. The boundaries themselves are unknown. And so rather than playing within the boundaries, infinite players actually play with the boundaries. So they're always looking to expand the rules, expand the boundaries, tinker, try something different and change the game itself. The only thing that they want to do is keep playing the game. So there's never a winner and a loser. The game keeps going. When you look at the world through this lens of finite and infinite games, you're going to start seeing these things all around you. It's something to very difficult to unlearn once you see it because there's no such thing as coming first in marriage. That's not really a game. That's infinite. <laughs> Depend, some blokes often. <laughs> <laughs> that was quick. I'll show you on the ball. Uh, or friendship 
or business or some of these kind of things, you know, they can be a finite or an mm. infinite gain depending on how you play it. Yeah, if you're treating a friendship or a, a business relationship as a finite game, you're trying to score points, you're trying to win, that's definitely not going to be a good, long-term, successful, productive relationship. The infinite in the from the infinite mindset, you're looking to do things that perpetuate the friendship and grow the friendship rather than just beat the other person and become the better friend. The lens that Sinek goes hard on through the book is through business because the game of business, it fits the very definition of the infinite game. For this, we may know all the players and new ones out there, they can join the game at any time. And all the players who join determine their own strategies and tactics at the time, but there's no fixed set of rules that everyone has to adhere to. You know, some companies can play with the boundaries as much as they like and change the rules in the way they will play the game. Even if one specific player... uh opts out of the game, the game itself keeps going. So if one company goes bankrupt or if one company folds, that's just one player in this long infinite game. The game itself is going to keep going. New players are going to join. New players are going to change the way that business gets played. So things like bankruptcy, mergers, acquisitions, whilst these uh, seem like a finite objective for one specific company, one specific player, the game itself is going to keep going. Cinex got an example of Victorinox. I don't know if they're still around. Uh, I haven't heard of them uh, in Australia. I think probably. I'd say they're around if they're obviously playing the infinite game by the looks of The book uh, only came out last year, so hopefully they're still going. Yeah. Well, this is an interesting company because after September 11, 2001, uh, their business basically plummeted. They were in the business of Swiss Army knives and all the Swiss Army knives, they were banned from luggage and all sorts of different things because everyone was scared of uh, terrorism at the time. So everyone just stopped carrying around Swiss Army knives in general. Yeah, I remember having one as a kid before 2011. I remember getting a cool little Swiss Army knife, but it it seems like it was the it was sort of the standard gift. It was the go-to for retirements or graduations or weddings that you'd give someone a little cheeky Swiss Army knife. It seems a bit weird thinking yeah. about it, but that's what everyone everyone got. So when they were banned from luggage and their sales plummeted, most companies would take the defensive. Most companies would think, oh my goodness, this is our biggest line of sales, this is our biggest source of revenue, we're pretty much cooked here, what do we do? Whereas Victory Knox, they did the exact opposite. They went on the offense. They didn't fixate on how much it was going to cost the company. They didn't think about how their business model was completely in tatters. They actually embraced this black swan moment as an opportunity, not a threat. Rather than extreme cost cutting, rather than laying off their workforce, they actually decided to overinvest in new product development. And through this research and development, they actually increased their spending to try to find new avenues to make money. So the CEO was pretty smart, obviously looking at through the context of history, knew that black swans are something that's just going to come up and at some stage might destroy your whole business model. There are good times and there are crashes. It never just goes up all the time. At some stage, it's going to go down. Because this CEO, they didn't think in quarters and meeting these arbitrary deadlines each quarter for their shareholders. They thought in generations. And from that perspective, your whole business plan is something totally different. Yeah, because he knew that business was great, sales were going up, 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 up. He knew that there was a crash coming at some point. So throughout this whole boom period, he was tucking away reserves of cash so that they could weather the storm when it eventually came. Before September 11. Knives accounted for 95% of their total sales and Swiss Army knives were 80% of their total sales. So the whole business 
ultimately built on selling knives that was almost out the door. Today, they've revolutionized themselves as a brand and as a company. Knives are less than a third of their entire business because they've expanded into things like watches, fragrances, travel gear. And in that time, they've actually doubled their overall revenues. So yeah, they took it as an opportunity. So rather than going off and firing everyone, they took it as an opportunity to expand. Because as Synex says, there's two different currencies that each company have got in play at any time, and that's will and resources. So resources are tangible and things that are easily measured, how much money, how much capital, all your EPS, your cash flow, your private equity, the stock price and uh, the EBITDA and all these kind of things. So these resources generally come from outside sources like customers and investors and represent the sum of all the financial metrics that you might have. And a lot of companies just look at the resources only. On the other hand, you've got the will, which is much harder to measure. And that will, that comes from the people within the company. And this is the feelings that people have when they come to work. So the will are those intangibles like the morale, the motivation, the inspiration, the commitment, the desire to engage, that extra discretionary effort that employees can put in. I think if you just look anecdotally, those people that you know and your your mates that you've got, the ones who are actually super pumped up and G'd up and excited to go to work, that passion and enthusiasm doesn't get caught up and measured in, in all these metrics. So, you know, it's quite obvious that there are two differences that you can actually prioritize for. And victory knocks in prioritizing and understanding that will is something that they could tap into because they had the infinite game. They could get their organization to proactively go after these new markets. And in the long run, they're, they're dominating things. So September 11 was obviously one big incident and this was one company that weathered the storm and got through it even better. Obviously recording now in late March 2020, there's a whole new Black Swan event that's happening around the world and a lot of companies are going to be very impacted by this and it's going to be interesting to see which companies are playing with the infinite mindset, realizing that the game is going to keep going and which companies get forced and get sucked into the finite thinking of the immediate short term. So in this episode, we're going to go through the five essential practices that a leader can adopt for the infinite mindset, advance a just cause, building trusting teams, studying worthy rivals, preparing for existential flexibility, and demonstrating the courage to lead. So the first essential practice of infinite mindedness is to have a just cause. A just cause is a specific vision of a future state that does not yet exist. It's a future state that is so appealing that people are willing to make sacrifices in order to help advance towards that vision. So if the leader in the organization paints a future so bright and so compelling for the employees, the employees, for example, they might turn down a better paying job to keep working for this organization. They might work late hours. They might work all the weekend. They might stooge the company a little bit less on their business trips and expenses, which I know you're uh, familiar with, Ash Joe. <laughs> Not at all, mate. So with the just cause, in terms of the, the currencies we were talking about earlier, the will increases with, with something that the employees, a vision that's being painted by the leader for the employees to follow. So this just cause, this is the thing that drives us and inspires us to keep playing, whether that's in science, society, building a business, the leaders that want people to join them and keep the game persisting, they're going to be the ones who are dictating in clear terms this affirmative, tangible vision of this ideal future. This cause is what's going to keep people thinking about the long term rather than just focusing on the short term. A lot of companies out there are absolute stinkers yeah. with this. A lot, of, a lot of companies stuff this one up. Yeah. I used to work for an organization which was very much like this, but we're on here, Visio. 
So I know if someone's listening, they're working from video. Bad luck. <laughs> Bad luck. You get a shocker. But they're a California-based maker of televisions. And on their website, they say things like, we deliver high-performance, smarter products with the latest innovations at a significant saving that can be passed on to customers. Now, what is that? I don't even know what Vizio is, but that's pretty, that's pretty generic, man. <laughs> it could be, literally, that could be anything. Yeah. It could be anything. It's not, it's not something that's going to inspire the workforce, make them sacrifice make them offer up their blood, sweat and tears to commit to this. It's pretty shit in all honesty, man. Some other shit examples is we do stuff you don't want to so that you can focus on the things that you love to do. Pretty weak, pretty shit. We make the best quality products at the lowest possible prices. Mm. Mate, these are just stinker. These are not just causes that you're going get, to get behind. There's another one here. We will be the global leader in every market we serve and our products will be sought after for their compelling design, superior quality and best value. What company is that? Well, if it sounds familiar to a miserable employee listening right now, you'd be working for Garmin. <laughs> Mate, that could be genuinely anything. That put me know. to sleep. Glo- <laughs> global leader, compelling design, best products, best value. That's literally That literally could be anyone. And you, Cinex says, he's willing to hang shit on specific companies. Mm, he hangs he shit on and Garmin. People. And, <laughs> and people. But he says that he's seen hundreds of variations of this formula. Basically, the formula is we're the best Everyone wants one of our products. Our products are the best, and oh yeah, we're, we're you know we're not too expensive. We've got great value. He said that so many companies use that similar formula and churn out a piece of shit just cause. Looking through the context of finite and infinite games, being best is a destination. It's a finite game. It's something that doesn't keep going. And a lot of companies go down this path and they do their rah rah speech and their marketing and say they're best, but it's a real weak foundation to build a company on. So as best is not a permanent state, something that's better is better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rather than saying the best, it just improves something better, so an infinite never-ending game that you're playing. And this means that you're searching for constant opportunities for improvement in all situations. That's it. In, in 2007, Garmin was the best, I guess, or could have been the best in that they were the leader in GPS devices for cars and boats. But today, their value is actually less than a third of back in 2007. That's because they were just so fixated on being the best, winning this finite game. They didn't realize, you know, smartphones come in, Google Maps, Apple Maps, Waze, they completely blew Garmin out of the water. So the finite company is thinking, how can I be the best? But the infinite company is thinking, how can I be better? Better means there's always room for improvement and there's always opportunities for growth. So there's three elements of the infinite game for the just cause. The just cause must be for something. It means it's optimistic and inclusive for everyone within the organization from the people at the bottom of the rungs, the foot soldiers to the big generals making the decisions. It's more inspiring to be building for something than against something. You might be working for an organization that's trying to reduce poverty, for example. So that's not as good a just cause as a company that is working for something. And uh, just cause in this context would be we're growing the number of people who are able to provide for themselves and their families. Yeah, it's interesting that being against something is nowhere near as inspiring as being for something. Another element of this infinite game, Just Cause, is that it has to be resilient. So in the infinite game of business, the Just Cause must be greater than the products that we make or the services we offer. So it's not just about we're making the best GPS services because that's such a, a small, finite game thing because... Maybe if it's you know helping people find where they want to go in life, that's much bigger and much more resilient. If a GPS dashboard 
device on your car is no longer the product that serves this just cause. It means you're resilient to adapt and find something else that still perpetuates the just cause. Yeah. Think of the music industry in the 2000s, right? They, a lot of them were playing a finite game, thinking they were sellers of records. I mean, we make digital music and that's it. And they'll probably measure all their arbitrary metrics on how many sales they're getting of their records. But an infinite game in this context would be we're actually sharers of music and that's a game that doesn't really end whatsoever. And if they identified themselves as sharers of music, they would have a much easier time fighting against the, the world of digital streaming. And these individual companies might have been the ones who actually came up with these new innovations. Yeah, the same with if you look at book publishers, they probably got stuck in the idea that they're just causes. We're making physical printed books on pieces of paper that are, you know, we make the best books there are. But that's very different to thinking, okay, we're trying to package up information and share information in an easily accessible way. The people that were thinking we're making the best books, they're stuck in books. Whereas someone like Amazon comes along, they make an ebook, they make the e-reader, they make digital books. And even beyond that, you know, what are other ways that you can share information? You know, podcasts, online courses, there are so many different ways to share information beyond just printing off a book. The third element of the just cause, it's idealistic. Now, the responsibility of the leader here is to say, look, even though the organization think they're getting somewhere and they, for the finite players, they might think they've caused a solution, but it's really up to the leaders to actually point out that they're only working on the tip of the iceberg and they've only just solved a very minor element of you know, the infinite game that they're actually playing. The second essential practice for the infinite game is trusting teams. Now, there's a difference between teams that work together and teams that trust each other. Trust is a feeling. Just as it's impossible that we demand people to be happy or inspired, it's impossible to demand someone that they trust you or trust each other. You can't just force that upon people. In order to develop trust, we have to feel safe expressing ourselves in the first place. Sinek draws on Brene Brown here, the book Dare to Lead, which we did about six months ago. Brene Brown says that trust and vulnerability grow together. To betray one is to destroy both. One of the mistakes a lot of organizations make is that they operate out of fear because fear, it's really a powerful motivator that uh, can force people to do things. But a lot of the time, if they're working out of fear, it actually might be going against your organization's best interests. We've got a story here. Alan Mullally, Mullally? he was uh, formerly of Boeing and he walked in to be the CEO of Ford in 2006. He was walking into a company that was performing really, really poorly. It was headed down, headed towards bankruptcy and it was driven by fear. There was no trust. What he did in the first place to get an understanding of the company and the landscape and where everybody was at, he ran these weekly business plan reviews. He invited the top execs from each of the different areas and they had to report on how their sector was going in accordance to the long-term strategic mission of the company. All they had to do on their slides for each section was to give it a green, a yellow, or a red. And uh, the first day he walked in and every single slide from every single exec was green. <laughs> the next week he walks in and it's green. The next week, everything is green. And Malali, he just threw his hands up and said, look, okay, we're losing billions of dollars, <laughs> but every single thing is green and everything is perfect. If we're losing billions of dollars, is there anything that's not going so well? And not a single person put their hand up. 
Yeah, it's pretty common. I work for a team as well. We've got metrics and magically we find a way for every <coughs> metric to be ticked off. It's I hope uh, the people who are meant to be valuing those <laughs> metrics aren't listening. I don't think they are. For me, it's the, uh, <laughs> the monthly reports where even if something goes down, it's still like it's justifiable. There's a reason that it you went down and it's okay. You yeah. find some kind of narrative <laughs> to make everything green like uh, the case of these Ford CEOs. Because in the past, the previous CEO, he would often berate, humiliate, and he'd even fire people if they said that something wasn't going so well. So all these execs, they'd been conditioned to hide their flaws. They found some way to cover up mistakes. And as we say, find some narrative to say, look, everything's running smoothly. Everything's going green. Eventually, one guy put on one of his slides that one small element was red. And everyone was sort of holding their breath. Everyone was shocked. Everyone was waiting for the yelling or the berating or the humiliation. And Mullally, he just said, thanks, Mark. This is great visibility. Who here can help Mark with this problem? And so everyone thought, okay, maybe that's just a good cover-up for now. When they walked back into the next meeting the following week, they expected an empty chair where Mark used to sit. But they were surprised to see that Mark was still there. Even though he admitted that not everything was perfect, he still kept his job. So there's like the first seed of trust there. Yeah, it's... It's a very big thing if you can feel vulnerable enough in your work to actually put your hand up and say you've stuffed something up. I mean, that's obviously going to achieve your whole overall business objectives to a much greater degree. I used to work as an engineer and I remember being very scared as a graduate at the very start uh, to put your hand up to say you made a mistake. Mm. And that's a very extreme example where the consequences can be absolutely disastrous. But I know a lot of graduates in those that organization were too scared to say, mm. I made a mistake. And then they'd let their shitty design go through and all of a sudden people are probably standing in those buildings. <laughs> oh my goodness. Don't tell me which buildings they are. I don't think I want to know. No. But so Malali would say, look, you have a problem. It's not that you are a problem. And he was still asking people, come on, surely there's something else that's wrong. Still people are a bit hesitant. But eventually over the weeks, they realized that the trust was built there. They realized that there was nothing to fear. They weren't going to be sacked on the spot. They weren't going to be yelled at. And a few more yellows started creeping into the slides. A few more reds started creeping into the slides. And eventually everyone was able to work together. They'd built a trusting team. They recognized that it's better to be honest and upfront and share the mistakes so that they could work together to save it. And ultimately, Ford came out of it pretty well. Another example of a destination where a low trust, finite attitude led up was with Wells Fargo. Uh, and this was the period between 2011 and 2016. Uh, interesting documentary on it, actually, if you've seen Dirty Money, um, episode one of season two. I just watched it last night. But in this period, Wells Fargo opened up 3.5 million fake bank accounts and some customers out there, they noticed the deception and so they were basically in all these these fake bank accounts were charging fees that a lot of customers knew nothing about. They were receiving debit and credit cards in the mail and out of the blue six months later, they were hearing from debt collectors. <laughs> so it was pretty brutal by these Wells Fargo people. So ultimately, 5,300 employees were fired as a result of these deceptive practices and CEO John Stump, so he was a legend before this period, but when he was caught, he said to Congress, this goes against everything regarding our core principles, ethics, and culture. The vast majority of our team members do the right thing every day on behalf of our customers. And if this transpired, it's not who Wells Fargo is. In other words, he was just passing blame on just the employees as if there was just a few bad apples and overall, they were just a bunch of legends, which was obviously a crock of shit. Yeah, five and a half thousand employees doing the same thing. That's not just a few bad apples. There's obviously something systematically wrong there to create fake bank accounts and charge fees and then close them before trying to get caught. That's just a ridiculous way to try and bump up your numbers. 
But so what was happening here was there was just so much pressure to perform. They'd obviously come out of the GFC. They're trying to rebuild. They're trying to bump up their numbers. So the pressure from above to hit your targets and to grow your revenue and to grow your profits was so intense that people started resorting to this slippery slope. It probably started as one bloke just thought he did it where someone closed an account and they saw there was an extra four bucks and he didn't tell them that there was that charge on their account. And just from there, you know, it's a slippery slope down to these five and a half thousand people sneaking in fake charges, fake accounts and, uh, and trying to bump up their numbers in the wrong way. Cynic tells us about the Good Samaritan study, which is definitely in play here. And if you remember this story from the Old Testament, it's about some dude, he's a Samaritan traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem, and he's the only person to stop and help a man who has been beaten. He's just lying on the ground full of blood and he's robbed and just left on the side of the road. And to recreate this exact scene, professors hired an actor to do the same thing. He lied in an alley, slumped over like he'd been mugged or hurt in some way and blood everywhere. And then they asked the students to pass this way on the way to their campus. And each time the experiment was run, they were conducted for a different group of students and each time the professors added a little bit of extra pressure to see what happened to the students' behavior. So, for example, one group of students, they were said, look, you're five minutes late, hurry up to class. For another group, they said, it's starting soon, you better make your way quickly. And then to another group, said, they said to the students, yeah, it starts pretty soon, but, you know, take your time and make your way over there. So each three sets of groups had different pressure when they were told to move past this poor bloke on the ground. So this first, low, the low pressure group, 63% of students stopped to help this injured man. The ones with medium pressure, 45% stopped to lend the assistance. And the high pressure, the ones who said you're late, hurry up, it started a few minutes ago, that only 10% of people walking past stopped to help this person in distress. Now, the interesting twist here was that these were actually all people who were studying in Bible college who knew the Good Samaritan story extremely well uh, and they were wanting to be ministers uh, and preachers at church. <laughs> so it was interesting to see that you know that little bit of pressure switched people from two-thirds of people helping to less than one in 10 helping, which is yeah. pretty crazy, man. Oh, 100%. And if you haven't figured it out yet, that's exactly what Wells Fargo did. They built the environment where the metrics were completely unreachable and employees at the bottom and the, who were the foot soldiers, they felt so much fear and pressure that they had to meet these metrics that just like the, the other people walking past the Good Samaritan, they did the equivalent of basically stuffing over their customers. And the boss, John Stumpf, this is one of the people Cynic doesn't matter, doesn't worry about having a good crack at. He basically comes across <laughs> as a real dick in this book and also in the Netflix episode. <laughs> I'll have to check it out. And in playing this finite game, John Stumpf and Wells Fargo in general, they got slapped up with some serious fines and their stock price dropped. So ironically, the shareholders who were pushing for these arbitrary metrics, they got burnt as well. The third essential practice is to have a worthy rival. So a worthy rival is another player in the game that's worthy of comparison. It doesn't matter if they're playing with a finite or an infinite mindset as long as we are playing with an infinite mindset could be a sworn enemy, a collaborator, a colleague, or anybody else within this game that you hold up as your rival. Now, the main thing here is that they do something or probably many things as well as or better than us. They might make a superior product. They might command greater loyalty. They might be better leaders. They might act with a clearer sense of purpose. You don't need to admire everything that they do, but you need to find something to basically put them up on a pedestal and say, these guys are our rival, these guys are doing this better than us, and we need to work to improve ourselves to get to their level. So it's not about beating the rival, 
to make a better single product that is a finite game. It's all about the constant growth and improvement and learning from them in playing the infinite game. There's no point going out there and choosing ones that are just going to make you feel superior. That's really no value. It kind of feels uncomfortable when you acknowledge that someone might be a little bit better or something and something you can strive towards and, and grow towards. Let's bring back our good friend, Alan Mullally. Alan's a legend in his book compared <laughs> <He's> to John. <laughs> Poor John Stump. <laughs> He's come up again here, Alan, back to Ford. And uh, when he came into the company in 2006, not long after he'd been there, a reporter asked him, what car do you drive? And expecting him to say, you know, Ford's best car, he actually said, a Lexus. This is the best car in the world right now. And Lexus was made by Toyota, which was an international competitor, really one of Ford's biggest competitors, which is a pretty interesting thing to say. If mm. you're the CEO of one of the world's biggest car companies and mm. you say that a different company has a better car and you choose to drive that instead of one of your own, it's yeah. a pretty massive statement to it's make. It's a massive statement. So it was a real brutal, honest assessment of where Ford was. Obviously, the CEO is saying, look, we suck in a roundabout way. So before 2006 at this stage, Ford had lost 25% of their market share. They're on the brink of bankruptcy. And the man, Mullally, he wanted to understand the health of the company before he looked at the balance sheet. So all the companies in the auto industry out there, they're obsessed with market share. But Mullally knew there was a difference between market share and profitability. So if he could make the company leaner and smarter, they could still make a profit with less market share. So interestingly, what he did was when he first got there, he drove a different Ford car home every single night because he wanted to test out, you know, what are all the different types of cars we make? And then when he cycled through all of the Ford cars, he asked the company, hey, have you got any of those Toyota Camrys? I want to test that out as well. And they didn't have any. Uh, they didn't have any that any of the executives could drive. So he basically said, let's go spend a fuckload of money and buy all of our competitors' cars. They bought a whole fleet of different cars from different models and different makes and different competitors. And he said to all of his senior execs, switch them up, try something else, try something different. These people had been stuck in the idea that let's just make our Ford cars, let's make them better and better and better without having a true understanding of what do drivers actually want and what are our competitors doing. So by picking a worthy rival, getting an understanding of what are they doing better than us, they could focus on making themselves better. Yeah, Sinek tells in the book of someone who was his worthy rival, right? And he'd always just look at their book ratings and see where they were in the rankings and just compare himself and kind of feel this pain and in a roundabout way. He doesn't explicitly call it envy, but it's, you know, it it sounds is, like yeah. that if you read a bit of green. <laughs> um, yeah, so what, what if, about you, Asher, in terms of podcast, putting you on the spot, do you have any worthy rivals that you just look at and see him higher in the, the rankings and maybe get better guests on the podcast than us and, and things like that? I think there's the the people like the Tim Ferriss, Joe Rogan, James Altucher, Jordan Harbinger, all those guys are probably too far beyond us to make them a worthy rival. I'm trying to think of someone who's a bit a bit closer to home, a bit closer to our level that I that we could make as our worthy rival. I've kind of got one. You got one in mind? Yeah. I think Jolly Swagman in Melbourne. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Guy from Melbourne. He's not from Melbourne, is he? I thought he was from Sydney. Oh, well, there you go. Probably less worthy now. You mentioned <laughs> no, that. he's still worthy. He's still, still worthy. worthy. But yeah, similar probably age to us, similar kind of content, similar kind of guests. And when I just seem high on the rankings, I just get a pang of envy. <laughs> Matt, what can, you, uh, what can you learn from him? What does he do better than us that makes him our worthy rival that we can strive to make ourselves better? I think uh, I hear him reading and talking about all the books that I really like and kind of Nassim Taleb and he articulates it in a probably a much better way impromptu on the spot than I could. And that's probably something that I want to be able to do a bit better. Nice. That was some good self-reflection. Well, yeah, let's, um, let's, 
Well, I was about to say, let's take him down, but that's not, that's a finite mindset. <laughs> let's learn from him and let's make ourselves better. <laughs> <laughs> let's tear him down. <laughs> the fourth essential practice is existential flexibility. He's got the story here of your man, Walt Disney. What a legend. And he was accustomed to taking risks and doing new things. And as a young artist, working in the new field that basically invented in animation, Disney itself was constantly innovating. So he was one of the first ones to make short films in which real actors interacted with cartoon characters like your Mickey Mouses and so on. And in 1937, he released the first ever feature-length animated film, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And it was really nothing that the world has ever seen before. So this wasn't experimentation for experimentation's sake. It was innately tied to his own personal just cause, inviting audiences to leave the stresses and the straining of daily life behind and enter a more idyllic, weird kind of world of his own creation. Yeah, so building towards that just cause, he was able to experiment and keep doing these things and ultimately create his own world where people could go and escape. He achieved that big success, Snow White, grossed $8 million, which in today's money is around $150 million. So that's a massive, massive, massive success. But with success comes a whole bunch of other problems. The money that was generated meant that he wanted to set up his own studio. That meant employing people. That meant managing people. Uh, He brought in his brother as a CEO. As the CEO, he thought the best thing to do here is make this company public. Of course, with making a company public, it means you've got investors, you've got a board, it means you focus on profit rather than creativity. So ultimately, what happened was some of Walt's worst nightmares came true. The team started to fall apart. It became very hierarchical. The people at the top were treated well, but the people at the bottom, not so much. There was always wars with the different workers' unions. And he was getting to the point where this was just not perpetuating his own personal just cause. So Walty, he quit. And I think another way of saying his existential flex is kind of like a, a pivot towards something new that's really just in the direction of your just cause. And after he quit, his just cause was right, like we were saying earlier. It's all about inviting the audiences to leave the stresses and strains behind them and for him to invent new worlds for them to enter. And basically, that's what he did. People thought he was going mad. He started selling his property, liquidating his assets, borrowing against his life insurance. He licensed out his own name and all this big risk, he put it all behind his next big existential flex. And what he did, rather than creating movies where people could go and escape their daily lives and enter this idyllic world of his creation, he made an actual idyllic world of his creation where people could go escape their daily lives. He built the happiest place on earth, Disneyland. So he didn't leave because he saw the opportunity to make more money or because of his failing business. He found a better way to advance his just cause and basically just sold all his assets and just leapt at that. So that's what the existential flex is. The existential flex is recognizing that the path you're heading down, whilst at the start it was heading towards your just cause, you recognize that the direction you're going now isn't perpetuating your just cause and you're making a you know a pivot, a flex, uh, taking a leap, whatever you want to call it, to head towards something different that is going to get back closer to your just cause. Yeah, it's a lot more of a leap of just your day-to-day flexibility required to run the organization you're really stepping into the unknown and you're embracing all the uncertainty that might be out there so when the existential flex occurs and again it's not the short-term silver bullet just chasing a direction it's clear to all those who believe and understand your just cause exactly why you're why you're actually doing it another example here is a bloke called george eastman he created 
Kodak, obviously a very successful company in its time. George Eastman himself became one of the wealthiest guys of his generation. His just cause was to give average folks a better way to capture their memories. And so he did that through photography. He was an innovator. Even after his death, Kodak continued to innovate to head towards this just cause. They were the first company that successfully brought color film to the masses. They paved the way for color in motion pictures and in home movies. In 1960s, they were the first company to introduce the film cartridge, so all the Joe Blows at home could uh, have their photography even simpler. And in 1975, their research and development arm actually produced the first ever digital camera. So look at this digital camera that's coming and it's on the horizon. Uh, you might be realized that this is a risk to your whole business model uh, built around the products that they've already built and the finite games they've already won in film and physical photographs. So basically all the supply chains and everything was set up for every single part of this, the process and making these cameras, the film, developing the photos, the flash bulbs, the chemicals used and all this kind of stuff. And obviously they didn't make this existential flex to digital cameras. And if they did it, they probably would have ended up cannibalizing their own business and pretty much all of their revenue would have gone in the short term. But if they just thought about that original infinite game that their founder George Eastman articulated which was originally to give average folks a better way to capture their memories, then they probably would have done this cannibalization. And because they didn't, you know, the rest is history. Kodak, they basically went down the gurgler and they went bankrupt and there's no business or any game being played by them anymore. Yeah, that's it. There was a a critical point there. They were the first ones there. They realized that digital could have been an option forward, but they were so tied to the finite game where they were making all their money from physical photography, developing photographs, everything to do with printing off photos that they couldn't make that leap. They made in the short term, they made billions and billions of dollars out of digital photography because they were the first ones there. They had invented it. They had the patents for the first two decades and they were able to license it out. But once they expired and once that revenue dried up, they were stuck. They were way behind all the companies that had adopted digital photography. As you say, man, the just cause was to capture memories. Digital photography was a phenomenal way to do that, but they've been left behind in their finite thinking. Yeah, I think it's a pretty obvious today that there's a lot of business models and that are requiring an existential flex. And if they're sticking to their old way of doing business, then they might share the same fate as Kodak. But really, if they think back to what their just causes are, then you might find new and innovative ways to deliver that just cause. The fifth and final essential practice of maintaining an infinite mindset is the courage to lead. And he opens up here with a story about CVS pharmacies, which is a big chain of pharmacies in the US. They had their just cause hanging on their lobby, ultimately, of their corporate headquarters. It said, helping people on their path to better health. Now, whenever the doctors or hospitals or healthcare companies would come in for meetings in their office, they'd see this. And then inevitably, during that meeting, they would address the elephant in the room. They'd say, look, you're trying to help people on their path to better health, but don't all your pharmacies sell cigarettes? So that's obviously a big contradiction there. Now, CVS in 2014, they made a massive call and they announced to the public that they were going to stop selling any tobacco-related products in all of their stores, which was almost 3,000 stores across the US. So that's a massive call. Like All the execs in the room, they knew they're going to lose a lot of money, $2 billion per year in revenue. It's a big call to make. Sacrifice $2 billion. Yeah, and it's probably a big whack on all of their end-of-year bonuses as well. 
So there was no competitive pressure to do this. Their competitors and all them and the pharmacies, they sold their ciggies and they made a lot of money for it. But this went directly against their just cause and they knew what that was and they made the sacrifice for it. The Wall Street analyst says this is one of the stupidest decisions you could ever make. They said that, okay, let's say you're not selling any cigarettes. They worked out that this is 700 packs of cigarettes per store per week and that's going to go to your rival just on the next corner down the street. And what they thought was, okay, so you're going to lose $2 billion in cigarette sales, which is going to go directly to your competitor. But what about all the other stuff that the smokers are buying in the pharmacy? So the total cost that you're going to lose is probably more than that $2 billion and it's going to go directly to their competitor. But despite all these logical facts of why they shouldn't do it, when they made this call, what happened was customers did notice that CVS had a brand and they actually stood for something. So all of a sudden, their nicotine patches, that went up 4% to cover it for it. And there was all these other producers of healthy products that all of a sudden allowed their brand to be put into these CVS stores. So there was a whole new type of customer that came and became more attached to CVS because they believed in the same cause. They found that those, you know, the guy who said, you know, that you're giving away for every single store, you're giving away 700 packs of sales per week to your competitor. They actually found that throughout the year, 140 million less packs of cigarettes were sold that very next year. And a lot of it obviously could be caused by CVS making this big leap, taking the courage to lead. The results on the stock market that everyone was saying, oh, you've, you've just given up $2 billion or even more of your revenue, your stock's tanked, you guys are going to be losing money. The day they made the announcement, the shares dropped by 1% from 66 to 65. But a year and a half later, they'd increased by close to double. They'd got to $113 and their earnings per share had risen 70% over this time. So we're talking about courage here. And if you think about it, adopting an infinite mindset in a world consumed with this finite mindset can really cost someone their job. Hmm. You think about this CEO, most companies, they come and say, hey, we're going to take this off and it's going to cost everyone $2 billion <laughs> and your bonuses, <laughs> yeah, we're chopping that in half. <laughs> Man, you just tell them to get fucked, <laughs> wouldn't you? I don't think that leader would last long or you'd think that they wouldn't last long in, in the finite game. So obviously, it takes a lot of courage to actually bring the infinite game, to make decisions to counter to all the current standards of business that are around you, to take the courage to lead, to ignore the pressure of all these outside parties who are really not invested in or believe or really care whatsoever about your just cause again he likes to hang shit during this book and so he's gone out and hung shit on cvs's two biggest competitors so according to the center for disease and control smoking is the leading preventable cause of death in the u.s combined they kill more than illegal drugs hiv alcohol car crashes and firearms we're talking half a million people just in the u.s who are dying every year from this preventable cause and on top of that, not only are these half a million people dying, American taxpayers are forking out $300 billion each and every year to treat smoking-related illnesses. Now, to put that into perspective, NASA's entire space program cost just under $200 billion over a span of 30 years. So we're talking 50 times the cost of getting to the moon mm. every single year that is spent on saving people or treating people with smoking-related illnesses. Man, we'd be in Jupiter by now if it wasn't for <laughs> these cigarette companies that Synex hanging shit on or these companies that are selling the ciggies. We've got another one here, Walgreens, right? And they're, they're a crock as well. And they contradict themselves. On their website, on the About Us, they say, we help people across the world lead happier and healthier lives. And their core values are trust, integrity, candor, guide our actions to do the right thing. And when asked if they would follow CVS on their lead to stop selling cigarettes, 
Obviously, they didn't. They said, it's an active decision to reduce space and visibility of tobacco products in certain of our stores. We focus on helping customers who want to stop smoking. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, that's all right in itself to try and reduce space and visibility of tobacco products and help people that want to stop smoking, but that's nowhere near the same as banning cigarettes altogether. There's no courage at all in that, is there? <laughs> no courage. And even the CEO said, uh, we've, we review this on a regular basis and it's always up for review down the road, uh, which is, again, pretty weak. If you look at mm. another competitor, Right Aid, on their website, their stated purpose in our story, they say, we have a personal interest in the health and wellness of our customers. That's why we deliver products and services to you, our valued customers, so that you can lead healthier, happier lives. And when these people were asked, are you going to follow CVS and stop selling cigarettes? Rite Aid said, Rite Aid offers a wide range of products, including tobacco products, which are available for purchase in accordance with federal, state and local laws. Oh. So yeah, you're allowed to sell them. It's mm. within the local laws and within the federal laws to sell cigarettes. But man, that's, that's pretty weak. They're full of shit. <laughs> he says it doesn't take any courage to continue to keep a finite mindset. And that finite mindset in this case is obviously selling cigarettes and making money and making juicy profits off it. But the courage really comes from pushing to the infinite mindset and realizing that it might take short-term sacrifices in order to further advance your just cause. So in this book by Sinek, he's had a huge focus obviously on the business point of view, but I think it can be applied to your personal life as well, not just business. I think business is analogous to your individual life and your individual life is somewhat analogous to business. I mean, it's a good thing to have a just cause and infinite reason and values that you're really working towards. Uh, Another one I really like in, in preparing for existential flexibility Sometimes when you get hit up and smacked up and something really hurts you in some kind of way, there is an opportunity to actually do a flex and change things up uh, in, in a way to advance what your values and your just cause might be. So as a teaser, in a couple of days, we're putting up an interview with the great man, Simon Sinek, to talk about all the things that are happening around the world. We're actually booked in to do it face-to-face with him, sit down and chat about his books when he was coming to Melbourne for his world tour. But of course, with everything going on, that was uh, that world tour was cancelled. And but thankfully, we managed to be able to record this interview with him virtually, and uh, I think it's going to be a phenomenal one. Mm-hmm.